Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember, your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites. It is our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. The title of this message, Naming Names, A Biblical Doctrine. Let's begin by asking some questions and putting forth an analogy. If you lived in a neighborhood and everything was very good, but somebody moves into the neighborhood and things begin to turn up missing. Over a few weeks, different items are missing, and it becomes the talk of the neighborhood. George tells Richard the night Al's pipe wrench went missing, he saw the new guy, Fred, walking past Al's house, carrying a bag which looked very heavy in the bottom. Then Roy says, well, you know, Carl told me he had a circular saw out by his fence line with a bucket over it, and when he went to get it Thursday, it was gone. Jim says, what day was that? Roy says, Thursday. Jim says, well now, I saw that new guy Fred walking with a bag that looked mighty heavy in the bottom on Thursday on the back of the end of the fence line. All right, I think you get the idea. Are these men gossiping? Certainly not in the sense most people would construe the word. In fact, in 1828, there were two definitions that were in existence in the English language of the day. First one, a pot companion or friend, a neighbor, somebody to shoot the bull with, as we would say today. And the other definition, one who goes from house to house as an idle tattler, telling tales. Well, now, tales are equal to fake news. But these men, they're having a discussion. Now, if one or more of these men were to go to Fred and ask him if he's been taking things without asking, and Fred says no, well, then this matter is over, right? Well, no, there is still the matter of stuff missing. Roy and Carl aren't satisfied with Fred's answer, and they begin to ask other neighbors if things have turned up missing. Are Roy and Carl gossipers or tattlers? No, they're investigators, so long as they keep Fred out of the questioning. Roy and Carl determine, after talking with other neighbors, that the number of missing items recently cannot be merely unexplainable, and their inquiry has actually resulted in Fred's name being brought up nine out of twelve times by someone who they talked with as being seen by, at, or near where an item was last known to be. Roy and Carl set a watch, and in time they witness Fred in the act of taking Kevin's tree pruners from his back porch. Roy and Carl, being Christians, go to Fred and confront him with what they saw. Fred, of course, denies it. Fred calls them gossipers, talebearers, and that if they say anything more about it, Fred will tell everyone that they're liars, malicious gossips, and talebearers, and even begins to tell some people that. Roy and Carl are not sure that they want this persecution, and they decide to drop it. 
You see, once one goes down the road of excusing sin and disregard of the duty to righteousness and throw in a bit of willful favoritism, it won't be long before you'll see the effects. When one does not act against the sin, the inaction assists the spread. Go with me to Proverbs 24, verse 1. This is what it says. Be not thou envious against evil men, neither desire to be with them. Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. And I quote, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, does he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? End quote. This scripture conveys the wisdom in not fainting or becoming weak when adverse events occur. If a brother has a disregarded the commands of God and by action disobeys the commands, the Christian or the follower of Christ is not to turn away or say, I know nothing. God who looks on the heart takes note of it. I am not to say nothing or ignore it, lest God requires my soul because of it. And have you ever considered how many times God counts it against your soul for every time you have failed to hear the words of this wisdom? And how about these? Quote, Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the city she utters her words. End quote. Proverbs 1, 20-21. This is all in reference to the setting aside the counsel of God and his reproof. We are commanded that in love to be corrected and cry out the correction. Proverbs 27, 5 tells us, Open rebuke is better than secret love. You've all heard the words before. Well, I love you, brother. I'll be praying for you. But if sinful behavior is not rebuked and not challenged, it is condoned. Many will not do this because it's not pleasing to man. It is adverse to a natural inclination to avoid conflict, pain, or a confrontational atmosphere. Hebrews 10, verse 26, tells us, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. End quote. i got to tell you, that is a sobering truth. We're not to be drawn back unto the death of sin, where God shall have no pleasure in us. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 2. This chapter is commonly referred to as the Gospel of Uncircumcision and where one finds Paul in his rebuke of Peter concerning it. We'll pick it up at verse 11. I quote, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. Verse 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew, meaning a Judahite, lives after the manner of Gentiles, meaning nations, non-Judahites or Israelites, and not as the Jews or Judahites, why compellest thou the Gentiles, meaning the Israelites or non-Judahites, to live as do the Jews, meaning Judahites? End quote. 
See, the gospel Paul is referring to is that all are sinners. And Judahites seemed predominantly to proclaim because of their much, quote, adherence, end quote, to the law, they are righteous before men and the world. But the gospel of Christ rejects that idea, belief, and notion. Now, of course, this is the primary teaching here, and it is evident. But as so often is the case, secondary teachings often get overlooked or disregarded altogether. The secondary teaching is the result of the actions of Peter and those who had been tutoring under him. When Peter separated himself from his brethren amongst the Gentile or non-Judahite believers on account of the self-righteous Judahite's presence, it was abundantly clear to Paul what the primary outward manifestation of such actions was to exhibit, hypocrisy. This manifestation itself is one of the most destructive of heresies a new believer encounters. The self-righteousness of those who persist in believing and with their outward show of holiness and righteousness, but inwardly are ravenous wolves seeking whom they may devour and serving their own bellies. It is this secondary teaching of hypocrisy that finds itself over and over again at the center of the decline of the Christian influence and following the ways of Christ. Consider now, if you will, Twelve apostles all following the command to go into all the world, and one apostle taught, hey, it's okay to lie, brother, because Christ died to forgive your sins. Another apostle teaches those everywhere he goes that those people over there, they're not like as we are. We are washed by the blood of Jesus, brother, and we are free to follow our lusts because God has made us free. You see, this is selective and exhibits favoritism, while the scripture says, we are none of us to be respecters of persons. So what can we learn? What it is is that while the primary teaching may be the precipitous event, the secondary teaching becomes evident by the outward manifestation of the actions. The secondary teaching is often no less a doctrinal variance than the primary. By disregarding or tolerating violation of God's command, the scripture says we serve our own bellies. Paul did not disregard the actions of Peter, which were hypocritical, and is a most important teaching. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17 boldly proclaims, quote, Woe to the idle shepherd. Now, idle in this scripture is spelled I-D-O-L. This shows us that men make idols of shepherds, and God says, Woe to them. Men who find conversion or have an experience to commit their life to serving the will of Christ and his commands, often make an idol of a preacher or a person or evangelist whom they believe precipitated their commitment. Paul clearly desired no such worshiping or idolizing him of him. Men can go for years walking in Christian circles, but fail to truly make that commitment where they could be said of, you take your walk seriously. There's another aspect of this public rebuke of Peter by Paul. First, Paul had no compulsion, according to the text, to conduct this rebuke of Peter privately or in the spirit of Matthew 18.15. He did so publicly, 
in keeping with his teaching in 1 Timothy 5, 20-22. And I quote, Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, and that thou observe these things without preferring one before the other, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. End quote. It's quite possible Paul draws upon the record of the prophets as we find in Isaiah 51, 7 and 12 to 13. And I quote, Hearken unto me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forgettest the Lord thy maker. End quote. How about the prophet Micah, chapter 3, verse 8, and I quote, But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin, end quote. And we'll go to another prophet, Jeremiah 9, 3. They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, end quote. Paul wants us to follow those who follow the good example, not the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction and whose God is their belly, meaning self-interest and self-desire. All right, now, let's move on to another example in the scriptures where the application of naming names of offenders is applied. Let's turn to a significant record of these offenders in Second Timothy. Paul, of course, writing to Timothy, exhorts him to stand firm and resolute in the faith of Christ, in spite of Paul's current situation. We'll go to 2 Timothy, verse 15 through 17. Quote, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagalius and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anisiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently, and found me." In the context of a letter of assurance and exhortation to Timothy of perseverance and consistency, the primary teaching is obvious, to stand firm in the faith. One can only assume from the text that naming Phagellus and Hermogenes, Paul wants Timothy to understand these two turned away from him. Paul does not say that they turned from the faith per se, but if Paul is firm in his foundation, turning from him is as turning from Christ. We can't necessarily infer it completely, which gives rise to the secondary teaching becoming evident, and that is, these two would not bear Paul's burden with him. We find that at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and this is something that Pastor Peter has taught on in his last Branson conference in 2011. Bearing one another's burdens. You know, we've all had these types of experiences where we try to do the right thing, 
and we become abandoned by those close to us. They won't stand with you to correct the error, which is existent. It's easier to turn away and even cast you as an ungodly soul tie. Another very important aspect of this exhortation of Paul is Onesiphorus at 1 Timothy 1. Paul makes it plain how this man diligently sought out Paul when he was in Rome. A brother in Christ has an abundance of opportunities today to seek brothers out in Christ and to refresh them. But the obvious understanding is only few will even understand how great an error it is to turn your back against the truth, especially to follow error. Let's turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at the examples in that chance. Again, Paul is exhorting Timothy repeatedly to be strong in the power of Christ and teach what Paul has taught, enlisting reliable, trusted, faithful, capable, and qualified men to teach others. Soldiers follow the commands of the commander, who is Christ. We are to study and show oneself approved, a workman not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. It's interesting this word, rightly dividing the word of truth, is in 2 Timothy 2.15, is to hold a straight course. It's number 37.18 in Strong's, and it's from a base of 5.11, meaning concise, to teach truth directly and concisely. Paul is conveying to Timothy, there's no new gospel or no new word of truth. God and Christ change not. Those words which ignore truth, deny Christ's commands not to lie to one another, not to do as the hypocrites which say, but do not. Paul at verse 17 says, Their word will eat as canker, of whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Verse 18, Who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Verse 19, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. End quote. Now we'll stop there. The primary teaching of verses 17 to 19 is that some were perverting the gospel message of the resurrection, attempting to shroud it in mysticism and call it as a spiritual rec- resurrection. But that is totally false. Paul actually addressed this at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 58. If the resurrection of the dead is not sure and certain, our lives are but most miserable, he tells us at verse 19. We labor for our heavenly reward, where moths and canker cannot eat away at us. So the primary teaching is most significant. However, the secondary teaching exists here again. A fair speech or a plausibly flawed argument or new doctrine can and does sweep men into error. Consider this, if you will. The church world teaches the laws done away in Christ, disavowing the truth that it was the ordinance implemented 430 years later, which ceased at the cross. So men are instructed, we are all sinners, and God loves everyone. Sin is covered by grace. Well, how many believe, therefore, a little sin here, a little there, is covered by Christ? But by doing so, they crucify Christ again, such as we find at Hebrews 6. Four to six. This is likely why Catholicism performs a ritual which does precisely that. Paul's purpose for saying everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity is because if there is no resurrection of the dead in Christ, iniquity may abound. 
he wants everybody to stop the iniquity. So in other words, some would say, well, continue to do and live as you do, for there is no heavenly ward in life. Christ paid the price and your sin for you. So carry on, brother. But the secondary teaching arises out of the primary teaching, and that is, if you take the name of Christ, you must not remain in iniquity, meaning obey the command in love and good deeds, not by doing so in partiality, and that by doing so does not provide you salvation. Salvation is the free gift of God. Suppose somebody puts forth a doctrine that says if we cast out demons, they will come. Well, that's a new doctrine because Christ certainly didn't say that. Christ wants men of righteousness, obedient. And if he wills a power of raising the dead or freeing one afflicted and tormented with sin and unrighteousness, it is God who does it, not men. If we purge ourselves of these vessels of dishonor, such as verse 22 says, we shall be the vessel of honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. A doctrine taught which conveys you know not how to pray or pray this way only or a doctrine conveying or implying one is not spiritual, needing more spiritual enlightenment, come unto us and we will teach you. But in reality, they never teach you. They're just coaxing you to fleece you. It's no accident Paul exhorts next to flee youthful lusts and to follow righteousness, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. What does that mean? That means those that oppose themselves in sinful behaviors. It's in opposition to the Christian. Let's continue now with Paul's naming those that he sees needing to be named by turning to chapter 3. Paul here exhorts Timothy concerning perilous times ahead. How does he choose to convey it? Well, by reminding Timothy of the very nature of man, lovers of self, covetous, boasters, proud, false accusers, despisers of those that are good, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, and from such turn away. Chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Like James and Jambres, these also resist the truth. Now, while these two have long been dead, you might be tempted to conclude, well, they don't really count. Well, that's where you'd be wrong. And therein lies the secondary teaching. Paul had the good sense to recognize the resistance to the truth and command of God by these two who likewise withstood Moses. By most accounts, it appears these two were sorcerers or magicians who Pharaoh employed for their magic arts to withstand the work of God done through Moses. Paul's reference to them seems to be an exhortation to Timothy about how they are deniers of the truth, as he says in verse 8, quote, So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds. End quote. Now, besides Paul being a zealot for God, Prior to his conversion, and his obvious command of the law of God, he was also well-educated. Festus himself proposed that Paul was mad from his much learning, Acts 26.24. So while the primary teaching of 2 Timothy 3, 1-9 is concerning perilous times, 
and how to identify it by the, by the conduct of men. The secondary teaching and the common denominator is they deny truth. Now, let's take a look here at the final chapter, chapter 4, in his letter to Timothy. Paul has already forewarned of the perilous days and exhorts Timothy to preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The primary teaching, of course, is stay the course, finish the race to win the heavenly kingdom. The secondary teaching is the falling away of Demos to return to the things of the world, or that he was unwilling to suffer the same possible fate which was upon Paul. Paul names him as Timothy recognizes who is standing for the faith with Paul. Paul does not want Timothy to be reliant on one who is not reliable. Also taught here is the disregard of the truth of the gospel of Christ to abide in that truth and to apply it and live it, not merely when it suits you or if it becomes perilous or uncomfortable. God is ever watching us to see our justification or whether we are justified by Christ. Paul also asks a few favors of Timothy, and one of them is to bring Mark. This account is not clear if this is the Mark of Acts 15.39, who had drawn back at one point, causing Paul to question his sincerity and steadfastness. But if so, it would appear Paul was possibly reaching out in good faith, seeing value and worth in him, yet as a member of the body. Paul then goes on to name Alexander the coppersmith. I've never been certain what exactly transpired with him in Acts 19, 3 through 4, uh, the waving of his hand which caused the crowd in unison to cry out for two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians. I guess that what normally would happen is they would motion with their hand that they were ready to speak or to give an account um, for what they were there at the assembly for. But I can't with any certainty fully learn what exactly Alexander did. Uh, the scripture does say uh, that he did Paul much evil and withstood our words. So the natural conclusion would be, in some way, he rejected Paul's words and teaching. When men refuse to hear truth or acknowledge sin from coming from another brother, they will cause much evil as they excuse sin and reject the words of one, trying to lead them to salvation, not to destruction. So here in Second Timothy, Paul identifies by name eight men who in one form or another reject the gospel of Christ and the ways of righteousness in thought, word, or deed. It could very well be Alexander, as some of these other men were adders in the way, vessels used of God to prove Paul, and others. In this fourth chapter also, Paul does in no way believe that he's going to receive damnation or be counted unworthy for the kingdom, nor is he ashamed for any of his actions. In fact, just the opposite is boldly proclaimed. He did not run his ministry and teaching by favoritism or melding the doctrine to fit the will of the people, but in the will of Christ. The hard work and even dispiriting work of pointing out and condemning hypocrisy and weak-minded Christianity was equally dealt with as was those espousing a new or different doctrine. 
he says, quote, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. It may be new to you, and it may not be the way you have been taught or considered before. Naming names, exposing hypocrisy, false teaching, and false doctrine is a commendable service to the body, especially when it is not done for personal gain or self-aggrandizement and retribution, but for the glory of Christ to the edification of the body of Christ, in and for the will of the Father. Jesus, at John chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, in dealing with the secondary teaching of hypocrisy and false teaching, not in the spirit of the legislative intent of the law or the commands of God or in partiality, Christ went on to exhort the hypocrites to judge righteous judgment. Let's go to John chapter 7, verse 17 and read it. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go you about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill you? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and you marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. End quote. The penalty for sin is death, we're told at Romans 6.23, and sin separates us from God. It does not draw us closer to him. Christ pretty well sums it up as he said, they would die in their sins, and he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. John 8:29. Christ, further, clearly showed us the principle of exposing hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 6 and 7, Luke 13, Luke 18, Matthew 23. And for the sake of time in this message, I won't go there. But most of you are familiar with these concepts but often neglect its leavening impact. In Isaiah, God says of it, at 65, verse 5, quote, Who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Ezekiel records it this way, quote, They come to you as people, come and sit before you as my people, and hear your words. But they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Ezekiel 33:31. These scriptures clearly are asking, who are we truly worshiping, and whom do we fear? Who do we seek to please? If Christian love is truly in us, we cannot speak anything but his truth, not seared consciences, excusing lies and hypocrisy, if Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, 
And 1 John 4, 8 and 16 teaches us that God is love. We need to be balanced, not imbalanced or hypocritical to ignore and excuse sin, especially within the church, the house of God. Pastor Peters also taught on this in Branson 2011. God insists and requires that we get to the root of our iniquities and purge them with his truth and watch his mercy unfold. The last sentence of 2 John verses 7 through 11 says, He that bids the transgressor God's speed is a partaker of his transgressors. Is a partaker of his, meaning the transgressors, evil deeds. End quote. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 17 says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. End quote. What hypocrisy is exhibited to espouse secret love of a brother while rejecting private and open rebuke. Proverbs 27, 5-6 and Colossians 3:16 instructs to teach and admonish one another. I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, tolerance of sin and hypocrisy is not a virtue. It is indeed a weakness. Jesus was most intolerant to sin and hypocrisy, and his love is not inconsistent concerning the liar and the sinner. Martin Luther exclaimed, quote, quote, It is my business to remove obstructions, but if I must have some failing, let me rather speak the truth with too great a severity than wants to act the hypocrite and conceal truth. End quote. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 23 through 4, God says that his ministers are quote, to teach the differences between the holy and the profane, and in controversy they shall stand in judgment, and they shall judge it according to my judgment and keep my statutes. End quote. John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Christ said, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deed should be reproved. But he that doeth truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. End quote. John chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Christ was not done. John chapter 8, verse 45 and 7 says, quote, And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinced me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. End quote. A deceiver affirms one another in their sins. One only has to ask, why did Solomon please God? It is because he asked God for the ability to discern between the good and the bad. It has always been interesting to me how the church world, and even among the remnant, you hear the constant drumbeat of phrases like, it's spiritual, brother. We've got 15 to 20 years of truth, and now we're getting to the spiritual. Well, let's look at what the Spirit expressly speaks. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and I quote, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, 
speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot iron. End quote. Now, spirit in this scripture is number 4151, and since it is used with the word speaketh, it is used to refer to or emphasize the spirit's work, that is, in the spirit of truth. And therefore, Paul says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, which is the antithesis to truth. Truth is your thesis, lies are your antithesis, and hypocrisy is the synthesis. Making sense? We can gain some additional valuable insight into God's holding both priests and people accountable at Hosea 4, verse 9, and I quote, And there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings, end quote. The Apostle Paul said at Timothy 4, 14 to 16, that Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to the doings of his works, of whom be thou aware, for he has greatly withstood our words. End quote. Now I hope you all are able to see how Paul dealt with those who claim to be in Christ but do much evil to one who labors to be in accordance with Christ. Now I know some of you may immediately be inclined to say, well, you or someone else, as the case may be, is speaking against another who they believe are also following Christ. Well, just remember this who Paul also was speaking of. Certainly, as it pertains to Peter and some of these men, had been walking with Paul in his journey to preach doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was of great importance to Paul to stop and to speak boldly concerning lies and hypocrisy. From my earliest walk with Christ, I was always moved by the words of Ezekiel 33, chapter 7, verse 7, rather, this is what it says, I quote, So thou, son of man, I have set thee a watchman over the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 16 and 17 teaches us, quote, For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for every one is a hypocrite, an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. My friends, I often tell people that if you aren't sure what God thinks of sin, or if you are uncertain about sin's impact, just go to the back of the book, take a look. Perhaps one can ignore everything leading up to the final chapter if one wishes in order to be convinced of that which leads up to it. But these words are true, and I quote, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his works shall be. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gate into the city. For without are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loveth and maketh a lie. That last one is laid out in Leviticus 19.11. It says, quote, Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. End quote. 
Brethren, this message on naming names and the biblical record concerning it may be new to you, due to years of preconditioning. It's a companion message to Matthew 18 message and the series SFA, What You Need to Know Which Can Harm You, on the Gideon Warrior Network on TalkShoe. There can be no doubt the God of Jacob Israel demands righteous judgment. If we are truly brethren and truly serving the will of the Father, we are to continue to exhort and plead and reprove those taken in a fault. It is duty to the saving of souls. I pray that it opens up your understanding. This is Doug Nelson. I trust you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.